I bring you grace, mercy and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We're continuing our journey through Holy Week with Jesus. Uh, we're looking at how Jesus fought for peace. He waged peace on Jerusalem each day of Holy Week. We've looked at Sunday, Palm Sunday, how he brought peace as he rode into Jerusalem. We looked at how he wept over Jerusalem. He wept for their plight, but he wept over their blindness, their inability to see what would bring them true peace. Then on Holy Monday, we looked at how he cleansed the temple, cleared out all of the corruption and the impurity so that those who needed to enter could enter to receive the peace of God and draw near to the God they wanted to worship. So today now we're looking at Holy Tuesday. What happened the next day where Jesus returns to the temple and has a conversation, well it's not really a conversation, it's more of a monologue really, to the, uh, to the teachers and the Pharisees as we've just heard. He, uh, he says to them, woe, seven times, there's seven woes that he delivers to them. And uh, we've always thought of them as being quite harsh. There's some pretty tough words in here, but we'll just have a quick look at what he said. Then we'll look a little bit deeper into perhaps what he was trying to achieve. He points out to them that they're shutting the door of, kingdom, of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. He says, by forgetting the things that are important, they've forgotten to keep important the things that are really important. And in doing so, they're actually denying themselves entry into the kingdom of God. But through their practices and through their teachings, they're also restricting other people being able to enter the kingdom of God. He goes on to say that uh, you go to all this trouble, you travel over land and sea to try to find these prominent people to bring to faith in the Jewish faith, and yet you're ignoring those that are right on your doorstep. And the ones that you do convert, you're actually uh, making them twice as much a child of hell as you are. I don't know how they receive that, but they're pretty tough words, aren't they? He goes on then to talk about their idolatry of the things that God has provided for them and the things that God has created for them, and they've forgotten to focus on the actual Creator. He says, if anyone swears by the temple, you say it means nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold in the temple, then they're bound by that oath. Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say if they swear by the altar, it means nothing, but if they swear by the gift that they've put on the altar, then they're bound by that. Which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes it sacred? They've lost sight of what's actually really important. He goes on by saying that uh, if anyone swears by the altar, then they are swearing by it and everything on it. If anyone swears by the temple, they're swearing by it and by the one who dwells in it. And if anyone swears by heaven, they swear by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. The only oaths that make any, carry any weight are the oaths that are actually sworn in the presence of God and uh, by the will of God. Then he goes on to say, you're also losing sight of what's important when it comes to your giving. You tithe your spices. So they, they were gardeners, they grew their own spices and he said, you go to all the trouble of giving a tenth of these little minuscule amounts of spices to God but you're forgetting the really important things in society, the justice, the mercy, the faithfulness, these things that the leaders of the Jewish faith are actually responsible for maintaining and teaching and mentoring in the community, they're not because they're too busy cutting up their spices and making sure they give a tenth. Having said that, he does say you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. So he's not saying they shouldn't be tithing their spices, but he says, do that, but keep an eye on the bigger things. Make sure you're actually paying attention to the bigger things that are going on. His final little analogy there, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. You're looking at these finite, uh, infinite little tiny things, and yet 
you're missing out on the big things completely. He says, you're cleaning the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed. You're all blind. You need to clean what's on the inside. Obviously, he's talking about their hearts. He says, you're all like whitewashed tombs. They're beautiful on the outside, beautifully presented. The facade that people see is perfect, but what's going on inside is terribly, terribly impure. To touch a dead body in this, uh, in this era was the most unclean thing you could do. They became spiritually and ritually unclean. They had to go through a whole process to cleanse themselves before they were allowed to go back into the temple and worship God. He said, you make it look like you're pure and pristine on the outside, and yet on the inside, it doesn't get any filthier than what you guys have in your hearts. It's just complete hypocrisy. Um, so he says, you know, you need to actually cleanse what's on the inside. And then finally, he says, you build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. They, they show all this honour to the prophets and to the righteous. And, and you make this claim that if you'd lived in those days, you would never have been part of killing those prophets. But he points out to them that uh, you're actually planning. He, Jesus knows that these leaders of the Jewish faith are actually planning to kill him. So he says, while you show this honour and, uh, and regality for the prophets of old, you're actually planning to kill the most righteous prophet that's ever set foot on the face of the earth. So again, the hypocrisy is exposed. So they sound like some pretty harsh judgments, don't they? They're pretty harsh statements and there's some pretty tough words in there. No doubt he got the back up and the, and the hair stood up on the back of the neck of, of numerous prophets, uh, sorry, numerous uh, Pharisees and teachers as he delivered these statements. But I wonder what Jesus was actually trying to achieve. What was his intention? What was the outcome that he was actually trying to accomplish? We read those because I think partly we don't really use the word woe very much these days. So we don't know how to interpret that word. We have trouble trying to imagine what tone of voice Jesus used when he delivered these statements. But what if Jesus was actually delivering these words in sadness, not in rage? What if uh, there'd been a few words at the beginning that said, with tears in his eyes, Jesus said to the Pharisees? That would change our whole perception, wouldn't it? Of what he was saying, how he was saying it, and what he was trying to achieve. What if he was actually giving them words of warning, not words of judgment? What if he was actually speaking with sorrow in his heart, rather than anger? What if he was actually trying to restore the teachers and the Pharisees to the love of God and to the will of God, rather than actually punish them for what they were doing? What if he was actually exclaiming his grief at their inability to see? As, as we heard when we looked at Sunday a couple of weeks ago, Jesus cries over Jerusalem, particularly the leaders of the Jewish faith, saying, if only you could see what it would take for you to have peace with God, but you can't see it. You're blinded to that truth. You're blinded to that reality. So what if Jesus was actually showing his grief here in this, in this uh, delivery? Were they just sorrowful warnings aimed at correcting the damaging effects of this misguided and immoral leadership by the, the Pharisees? What if Jesus was actually speaking like a parent who was pleading with their children to turn from their destructive ways? On the Wednesday night of the Bible study, we looked at a, a painting, I think it was by Tissot, wasn't it? That sort of showed Jesus in the temple courts and he's got, he's got his hand up and it looks like he's pointing, he's actually not. I think if you could look at the, the photo close enough, he's sort of got his hand, really his hand is outstretched over them. But we, when we first see the uh, painting, we assume he's kind of pointing at them and he's you know, trying to nail them down with all these, these judgments and criticisms. But maybe that's not actually what he was doing at all. 
maybe he was actually trying to speak to them in love. That word oya, we've translated as woe in this particular NIV. It could also be alas, you know, a statement of, of, of grief or of sorrow um, or of lament, you know, if only. It shows an emotional heartache. So let's look a bit deeper into what Jesus perhaps was trying to say and what he was trying to do. In the book by Porterfield, he quotes saying that Alexander Souter adds an important classification in his lexicon on the Greek New Testament. Greek, the lexicon is a, you know, is a dictionary of, uh, of the Greek New Testament. And he says, This word, woe, expresses rather a statement than a wish or imprecation. That is to say, Jesus hasn't, wasn't willing their destruction, nor was he reveling in an opportunity to curse them. But rather, Jesus was warning the scribes and the Pharisees of the state they were in. If we look a little bit wider at uh, this Gospel of Matthew, we see that uh, in the verses just after this passage that we've quoted, Jesus actually says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. This maybe reinforces the, the possibility that Jesus was very sorrowful over what he was seeing and he was trying to gather them together. He was trying to show them their ways and he was trying to bring them back in line with God's will. Earlier in Matthew's Gospel, he has the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel according to Matthew. And then today, the seven woes are really the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Temple Mount. So they're kind of like bookends over Jesus' ministry in the Gospel according to Matthew. We don't often compare them because they seem to be saying different things, but they're, they're bookends, they're facing in different directions. So there is perhaps some comparison between the two of them. The Beatitudes tell us Jesus saying that the kingdom of God belongs to the poor in spirit, but today in the woes, Jesus is saying that the Pharisees are denying the poor entry into God's kingdom. The Beatitudes have Jesus saying that the pure in heart will see God, but in today's woes, Jesus is telling the religious leaders that they're blinded by their hypocrisy. They don't see. The Beatitudes tell us Jesus saying, peacemakers are children of God, but today we have those harsh words of Jesus to the Pharisees that the converts that they're producing are acting like children of hell. In the Beatitudes, there's blessing for those persecuted for righteousness, but Jesus points out in the woes that the religious leaders are about to persecute and kill the most righteous one, the most righteous prophet ever set on earth. So what's Jesus trying to do here? Both the Beatitudes and the seven woes are spoken in love and both are seeking to move people into the same direction, into, the, into God's will, into the direction that God is trying to lead them, but in two very different ways. So let's think about how perhaps God, uh, how Jesus is trying to coerce the Pharisees and the teachers to realign themselves with God's will. Has anyone ever been sailing a bit okay excellent i have my brother-in-law meredith's sister and brother-in-law have a yacht that they built over 35 years or something and they've taken us out sailing uh this is actually footage from the yacht not my footage but it is footage from the yacht that my sister-in-law has, has um, recorded when you're in a yacht on a nice peaceful but breezy day you put the sails up and you move along and if you're moving with the wind it's awesome it's nice and peaceful. The boat's gliding along. There's other footage that uh, Carolyn's put up on the internet. I couldn't get it to download. But she's got footage of dolphins swimming in the bow wave along the side of the, the boat. 
the d one day when we went out sailing, uh, Danny got me to, uh, to take the wheel. I don't know what he was thinking, but he got me to take the wheel and he taught me how to use the instruments to find what I, what I call a sweet spot. It's not, you won't find that in any sailing journal, I'm sure. But I call it the sweet spot where you get the boat and the sails in just the right orientation to the wind and you just fly along. And you can hardly hear a sound because you're moving at the same wind, uh, same speed as the wind is. You're carving across the waves because you're going in the same direction as the waves. And it's just the most peaceful, tranquil sort of experience. What I found was I was really good at not finding the sweet spot. And as soon as you're not in the sweet spot, then the mainsail just drops. The other sails start flapping and chattering and making a heck of a noise. And it's not peaceful anymore. It's not good. And then at some point, you need to actually turn around and come back to where you came from, which means you've got to go back into the wind. That's a, a very different experience. The boat's usually leaning over to one side. The waves are crashing up over the front. You're getting wet. You're getting cold. The wind is blowing in your face. And the, and the sails are making the most enormous noise as they're working against the wind, trying to cut back into the wind. To me, that's very much an illustration of what Jesus is trying to do here. Jesus is... is showing the Pharisees the direction that God wants them to go in. And if they would align with that, then it would be peaceful. They would be moving in, in harmony with God's will. They would be in step with God and they would be being uh, drawn along by God's will and everything would be going okay. But instead, they're going in the opposite direction. God's will hasn't changed. Just like if you're sailing and you turn around, the wind hasn't changed. The wind is still going in the same direction at the same speed, the waves, the water. They're doing everything they were doing before. It's you that's made a difference. You've turned around. You've changed orientation. And while you now think the wind is against you, it's because you've turned into it. Similarly, if we're in tune with God's will, everything is peaceful. But if, as soon as we turn around and start fighting back against God's will, as soon as we're out of that sweet spot, it's going to get noisy. It's going to get messy. It's going to get hard work. Sometimes we even think that God's will is against us. We feel like God is working against us. But it's kind of the opposite. God's still doing what he's always done. He's going, no, no, this is actually the way we need to go. But if we're fighting against that, it's going to be hard work. Interestingly also, I found, uh, I was educated, had a quick sailing lesson from a sister-in-law yesterday when I spoke to her on the phone. And she was telling me how sailing is a lot like an aeroplane. So we all know that aeroplanes fly, right? But the actual science of it is that by the shape of the aeroplane wing, the wind that goes, or the air that goes over top of the wing, moves a lot faster because it's got sort of further to go. So it moves a lot faster, which means the pressure, the air pressure, is reduced. And that means that everything always moves into the, the path of least resistance, doesn't it? So the air pressure above the wing is lower than the pressure underneath, so the wing goes up. And when the wing goes up, it takes the plane with it. And it keeps creating this low pressure zone on top of the wing up here so the wing keeps moving into that low pressure and therefore the plane lifts up off the ground it's very much the same with the sailboat i didn't actually realize this but the sail is a similar shape and when you get the sail obviously standing upright on the top of your boat it has the same shape so the wind that's coming the air that's moving around the outside of the sail is moving much faster lower pressure so the sail gets dragged into that that low pressure area we all think that we fill the sail up with wind and the wind pushes us along that's not actually what happens it's actually being dragged along because the sail is creating a low pressure zone in front of it it moves into it and the boat mo moves with it 
So the boat is actually being dragged along by the wind by virtue of the shape of the sail. For me, that's very much how God works in our lives as well. God is always going before us. God will never expect us to go anywhere that he hasn't already gone before. So God moves before us, and if we're in sync with him, he will draw us along with him. He's not pushing us. He's not forcing us. He's just allowing us to be drawn along with his will, with his momentum, with his energy, with his intentions. And if we choose to be part of that, we get drawn along with him. And it's peaceful, and we're productive, and things, good things happen. But if we fall out of that zone, if we fall out of sync with God's will, then it becomes hard work. Has anyone experienced that? You're all smooth sailing people, right? You've never, you've never fought against God's will? It's just me, I know. Fascinating, isn't it? So it's important for us then to, to find God's will, to listen to God's will, to seek where the wind is moving. And God's direction may change for us from time to time, but if we stay in sync with it, then we'll always be drawn along with him in a, in a pretty peaceful and productive sort of way. So did Jesus' words make any difference to anybody? He was, he was speaking from a, a position of powerlessness. You know, he had no authority that the Pharisees or the teachers respected. So he was speaking to them out of a position of complete powerlessness. They held all the power. I wonder if his words, his woes, his, his grief made any difference to them. We do find uh, in Mark's Gospel that Joseph of Arimathea, who was a prominent member of the council, he was a prominent leader of the Jewish faith, and he was himself waiting for the kingdom of God. He went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body after Jesus died on the cross. So it would appear that Joseph of Arimathea certainly came around to Jesus' teachings. He was a secret supporter of Jesus. Of course, we also know that joined with him was Nicodemus, who had also visited Jesus earlier. There's a discussion about baptism between Jesus and Nicodemus and being born again. That same Nicodemus then helped Joseph of Arimathea out with burying Jesus' body, anointing Jesus' body and burying it. And Nicodemus, uh, as we've learned in other times, that mixture of myrrh and aloes was a very significant financial contribution. So Nicodemus, it would appear, also listened to something that Jesus said at some stage and came around to follow him. So out of Jesus' relative powerlessness, he managed to break through for a couple of these guys at least and managed to, uh, to bring them back in line with God's will to some degree. There's a lot there to think about, but I encourage you to find God's will for you, to be in sync, to trim your sails so that you can sail in harmony and in peace uh, with God. But also think about how Jesus had the courage to speak from his powerlessness to those who are in power. Who do we need to speak up for? Who are powerless in our community? Who do we need to speak up for? Who do we need to speak to? Who are those in power in our community that we need to speak to to be able to make life better? for those who can't speak for themselves. Some really important things to ponder uh, from here on in. As you do that, I pray that the peace of God, which is beyond our human understanding, will keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.